This week on the Backtable Podcast. The team needs to comprise of individuals who are, again, passionate, motivated, and are champions of the respective positions within the PE team. And if there are not any physicians on part of the team that want to manage that other aspect, then it behooves the interventionalist to learn and do it. My IR partner, Chris, he will call me often. Hey, I can't really, you know, evaluate the echo so clearly. Can you look at it and let me know what you think? Or, you know, upon discharge, you know, he, he will say, all right, I will refer this patient for you for follow-up because the patient has RV dysfunction. And, you know, I'm not sure what I need to look at at three months. So do you mind seeing the patient follow-up and vice versa? I don't remove filters and I'll send the patient to him. So that multidisciplinary team comes into significant advantage when you are thinking about not only initial stages, but obviously long-term as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. A decade ago, Rapid AI harnessed AI to revolutionize stroke care. Now they are bringing that same innovation to aneurysm and pulmonary embolism. This AI-powered, clinically-driven workflow platform enables care teams to accelerate triage and treatment decisions and improve operational efficiency to achieve better patient outcomes. Rapid AI, where AI meets patient care. Now, back to the show. Today, we have a great episode lined up for you. We will be discussing the essentials for a successful building a successful PE team. Today we have an interventional cardiologist, Dr. Rohit Amin. Um, we previously discussed this topic about a year ago with Michael Bratza hosting. He had um, interventional radio- radiologist, Dr. Karin Gonzalez. This was episode 196 for those of you who want to go back and listen. And they talked about building a PE team, but it was more in the academic setting at Jefferson. And today we thought it'd be good. It's been, it's been about a year since we did that. And Rohit is in the private practice world and has a more kind of a unique PE response team that's been built. And, and so we wanted to talk to him about the challenges he faced when building this in the private practice setting, covering a larger geographic area and how current technologies help streamline that care for better outcomes. Welcome Rohit to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So well, I always like to start these out with um, just like a quick intro. Tell us where you trained, where you're at, what your practice looks like. I'll have some follow-up questions. But yeah, start where where you trained at. So I did my general cardiology and heart failure transplant training at the Ashner Clinic in New Orleans. It's a pretty robust interventional program in that they were very cavalier in the early days with both endovascular intervention. In fact, they were probably the first group of formal interventional cardiologists that held a multi-year course known as peripheral angioplasty and its jazz. And then mm. fast forward <laughs> a few years later, they were the first group of interventional cardiologists that sort of deviled or moved into the space of stroke intervention through a grant with the American Heart Association. So had a fairly unique sort of perspective and viewpoint on the approach to very wide variety of interventional cases and not just dedicated to coronary. Uh, That kind of fueled my dedication in 
and desire to be in other spaces. And so from there, went on to do my interventional fellowship at the Detroit Medical Center. I had the luxury of working with some really important mentors who really set the stage for my next phase, which was obviously um, practicing, private practice, interventional cardiology fellow. Yeah. So you moved moved from Detroit down to Florida, right? And you're in the Panhandle area. Is that right? Yeah. So I've been, I moved here in 2012 after fellowship, actually got recruited by a faculty member from the Arsenal Clinic who came way this way after the hospital decided they wanted to start their own program. And for your, many of your audience who are interventional cardiologists, you know, in the 2000 era, there was a big shift of cardiology groups being purchased and bought by many of the hospitals. And so coming out of fellowship, it was very daunting to hear about joining a private practice group and that not knowing after a year or two or three years, if you'll be part of that sort of still uh, that makeup of the group that's been purchased by a hospital. So I chose to take the safe route and obviously a former faculty member and mentor of mine brought me down here. It was not my first place, uh, just being geographically area, but I had the opportunity to really practice my skill set, everything I've been trained to do. And that was obviously a very important piece to what shaped my career for the next 10 years of being here and being able to really flourish in a lot of other spaces and facets of, of interventional cardiology. So for the young, budding interventional cardiologists or radiologists out there who are looking for their first job, of course, being in a big metropolitan and cosmopolitan city is always exciting, but making sure that you have the ability to practice your skill set. And for most of us proceduralists, it's incredibly important to have a mentor that you can trust. There's inevitable cases in the first two, three years, and even now, 10 years later, you need a confidant, someone who can support you through the thick and thin. It can be an isolated island by yourself if you're in a practice or an area where you don't know anyone. And yeah. um, it definitely makes it a big, tremendous difference in, in currently my practice. Yeah, it's so true. And probably for job retention as well, just to have those mentors, you know, close and, and at hand. So how big is your group? Yeah. So when we started, there were four of us. I was the fourth guy that joined. Now we're 12. Wow. So pretty exciting. And we're, yeah, yeah, we're looking for two others. And the Panhandle is, and most of Florida has really seen a surge in relocation, particularly to the pandemic the last two years. So yeah. exciting time. Yeah, you're right. That whole Panhandle area is uh, not only beautiful, right? But um, but yeah, I've seen a lot of growth in population because I, I I think you and I talked about this before. I, I went to med school at Tulane, and so we used to drive over there in the you know I graduated in 2007, so we drive over there in the late 2000s, and then it had been a while since I'd been down there because we went up northeast for training, and by the time we came back down south, it was 2004. 13 and um i you know we would drive up we go down to like you know rosemary or seacrest or uh, seagrove and uh, the growth down there was it was incredible it, but you're more in the pensacola area right yeah i'm in the pensacola yeah. area so uh, you know we have the same beaches as 30a and destin yeah. do yeah we like to say we have more of identity we have locals that actually <laughs> live here <laughs> yeah totally. so totally. um yeah it's, it's been a nice it's also been a nice part to see the city flourish into what it's become yeah 
So it sounds like you have a very robust endovascular practice, not just cardiac work, but peripheral work. And then it sounds like PE work, which is going to be our topic for today. How did PE interventions become like another major focus of your practice? Was it always that way? Was it even part of your training or is this something that kind of came across in more, more when you became an attending in private practice? Yeah. So I think like any other budding interventional cardiologist has spent many number of years of training and looking for the opportunity to create a niche for themselves in a community practice. You know, it was just part of the repertoire to seek training, education, and then hopefully being able to treat those patients. It was a sort of a natural progression for me in my first two cases that I were experienced in terms of interventional PE was in cardiology fellowship. I had done a year of heart failure and a year of interventional and in my opinion, you know, those are the best skill sets to really manage these patients because after all, people die or with PE secondary to RV failure, it's a cardiovascular compromise. So it was just a nice little opportunity to get into. I, when I moved here in 2012, there was the interventional radiologists who were part of a big private practice group here who to this day, along with their vascular surgeons, have the lion's share of the endovascular work. Uh, I started to pick up a few consults here and there on DVT therapy and a couple PE. You know, at the time, it was very rudimentary in terms of management of PE. It was just a catheter-directed yeah. thrombolytic. So right. in terms of, of you know, skill set, there was no separation between myself and, and the other folks who had been participating in it. But I wanted to go one step further. I wanted the awareness to be sort of available for everyone else, as I noticed not only my partners, but even our colleges and even pulmonologists were not aware that this sort of modality existed. And so actually through a serendipitous event with the ECHOS rep, he uh, mediated a discussion with me and an uh, interventional radiologist who is now my co-director after now 10 years, uh, excuse me, eight years of the, of the uh, service line. And we came together over a couple of beers and decided, you know what, let's just start this together. Uh, at the time, there wasn't a formal service line, so it took, and it still remains, a lot of groundwork on our behalf of having to pitch this to the administrators, then the medical executive committee, multiple meetings at 6.30 in the morning discussing why we thought this was a good idea for the hospital to yeah. carve out a formal service line, and then, of course, the awareness piece. So through that, the awareness piece was a number of both, you know, formal CME programs and informal CME programs from grand rounds to teaching the house staff to morning report to a bunch of awareness meetings outside hospital grounds that usually the restaurants sponsored by the reps were such as World Thrombosis Day, VT Awareness Day. We yeah. went from, I remember the first meeting we had one person and we have a big event coming next week for World Thrombosis Day and we have, I believe, 45 RSVP. So they're excited to see the growth. That's cool. And and so you mentioned part of the challenge was just this awareness piece where you're just like, um, you're on the front lines, you're seeing these patients come in and you're seeing that the treatment at the time, the cathode-directed lytics was really, it, it may, you know, let's not say it's not, it wasn't effective, but there could be improvement. And, and, and I'll, I remember back first starting, you know, in practice, that PE care definitely seemed chaotic and uncoordinated. And it sounded like you had a, another progressive thinking IR that to team up with 
which is unique and, and really neat to see and hear about. What about the, like, did you have to go out and, and like capture other advocates, not capture, but recruit other advocates like, uh, you know, the, the guys in the ICU, the pulmonologists? Um, how, tell us a little bit more about that, like getting other, some of the other specialists on board. Yeah, good question. So initially, lots of pushback, particularly amongst our pulmonologists at the time. This is, again, take you back 2013, where to some degree, their chest guidelines are sort of not advocating, you know, interventional therapy. Yeah. But back then, the paucity of data was even more than it is today. And so I think it was sort of another sort of narrative for the pulmonologist to say, okay, we have another cowboy interventionalist who wants to do another procedure. Right. And it was our intention to not just provide the coverage or management of inpatient, but it was also our intention to also provide service for longitudinal follow-up, which I hope we will probably pick up as we move on, which I yeah. really think was the impetus for our growth. But thirdly, you know, and I stress this a lot in the consultative meetings I have with other sort of community hospitals, part of the Ascension Network, is that you have to have a champion. The champion should not just be about interventional therapy. It should be also about anticoagulation management. That's a huge nuance in itself that doesn't really get recognized in the PERT concept. Mm. Um, and sometimes we don't have fellow hematologists like we had in our situation who were excited to honestly to be part of it. Nor do we have the pulmonologists who felt that, you know, aggressive management, whether it be at the time catheter-directed thrombolytics or some form of thrombectomy was appropriate in these patients. And, you know, we had a couple of discussions and then my partner and I decided, you know what, we'll just move this without them. And yeah. perhaps with good work and good merit, they'll come on board and the service line will flourish. And fortunately it did. What were your main like resources at the time? I know the PERT consortium formed what around 2012 or so, I think. And that's when the first PERT teams that were, I think, were being organized in the nation. Did you guys go visit another facility or did you just, did you go to a, a conference or did, what, what were your main resources at the time to like kind of put that workflow together and build that team out? Yeah, basically it was endovascular today. <laughs> Journal, man. <laughs> that's, that's I saw, <laughs> I, read, I read one of the articles, endovascular today. I think Kenneth Rosenfield has copyrighted or has the term, <laughs> has the rights to, to the PERT team. And so, you know, I just, I just thought it was another opportunity. I've always been very ambitious as it was an opportunity to bring this down here. And I thought it'd be, be very neat to have this in our area since there was nothing like it. Of course, you know, at the time, I had experience from fellowship that was also just in the infancy. So I really didn't have a proper, you know, blueprint or roadmap to really implement like we did in other facets of training. Sure. But my partner who performs stroke interventions, I perform STEMI care. It was very similar. You know, you bring a multidisciplinary approach on the premise that timely care is important knowing the nuances of which patients need intervention, which not at the time, again, the details were not as robust as they are now. And um, having access to a, you know, a uh, radiology suite or cath lab facility uh, suite was also incredibly important. And so I think from each of our background and what we did actively already in that space, it just, again, was a natural progression for the both of us to start this program from the ground up. 
Yeah. And how, just cur out of curiosity, how big is the IR group that works with you guys, like alongside you guys? Yes. Yeah, so we've gone through some changes recently in the last uh, two, three years. We had a three-man IR private group that was part of an eight-man vascular surgical group that encompassed most of Northwest Florida, huh. three OBLs and so forth. They were a giant group. And then the hospital made some changes and they brought in, I think it's the Rad Partners group that they're here. Okay. And so we have two IR, I think they flip around two to three IR guys now. Those guys are, you know, they come from very reputable, well-known programs and uh, they're not part of the formal PE team. Uh, we've had some discussions and things haven't just worked out to where we wanted. So we're kind of just still myself and the original partner. Oh, so it's just the two of you on the, the PE team. Yeah, man. So one of the things that I, yeah, one of the things I always get from my partners or friends are, how are you doing STEMI, which is also one out of two? <laughs> and how yeah. are you doing PE, which is one out of two? Uh, yeah, man, it's a, it takes a lot of work. I mean, so that, uh, you know, for those folks who want to start to be part of the team, it's, it's, it's obviously now things are dramatically different than it was in 2012, 2013, in that no one is aware of this. No one even understands there's an algorithm. What does this mean about interventional therapy? I mean, including my own cath lab staff and few of partners at the time were right. confused and why I was meddling in this field. Um, and why this was important, you know, now there's such incredible technology, you know, with the AI and then there's obviously right. all kinds of uh, clinical data and guidelines that has really helped propel the field forward. And in fact, it's funny, um, last week I had a discussion with our service line administrator and she came to me, I haven't really met or talked to her in a long time. She came to me and said, congratulations on your 200th case. And I said, all right, 200 wow. case. And she said, yeah, 200 PE case. That is amazing. As she comes from Jacksonville and that in their area, they have three Ascension hospitals and not a single interventional cardiologist or an inter interventional radiologist has developed a team. So um, wow. it's been a lot of hard work. I'm very proud of what we've accomplished. Um, but we've been able to, to get to a point where now we're trying to get the notoriety and the, and the support that once we did not have in the initial days. Yeah, I mean, and that dude that highlights the number one, you know, thing about building a PE response team is you got to be committed. You know, mm. right? It's a lot of work, and you got to be dedicated to this disease process and these patients because you can't just dabble in it, right? It's got to you got to show up. You got to be there for those patients and and for the the rest of the the, the team. And so, you know, I like. I've been invited to a PE response team in the past, but the problem was it was at a hospital where I didn't really go to very often. And so I, I, you know, respectfully declined, but it's one of those things where, you know, and, and then I went back to the cardiologist later to ask him what happened. He said, you know, I couldn't get anybody on board. He's like, I can't do it by myself. So it, it, it's one of those things where it really takes true dedication and, and passion for, for the, for those patients. And, uh, so yeah, kudos for you to you guys, 200, 200 case. That's, that's impressive, man. Yeah. Aaron, you're right. Uh, the passion and dedication that that's, that's incredibly important. You have to be intrinsically motivated to really do this just like in obviously any other field, but yeah. this is different in that for many of us, you know, we didn't have any formal training. 
Right. Uh, no one told us, how do you work up intermediate risk PE? What does this mean? How do you use this device? How do you choose between catheter-directed thrombolytics or suction bore thrombectomy, large bore, or now very large bore? No, those are all facets that you learn on the job. And for many of us who are already busy doing everything else to add this next layer, does take a lot of time, you know, outside work to learn the homework and do all the due diligence and get your hands on every article and journal and reach out to the experts and so forth. And, and, that, and that really propelled it. And, you know, uh, my partner and I, although we complain about it, we never received any call pay for all those 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, but uh, it's rewarding. You know, I tell my partners to this day, you know, I, I do carotid stenting and do STEMI and some other things in interventional cardiology. But management and treatment of PE is incredibly rewarding because it's, it's instant or sometimes immediate gratification. Uh, and patients feel significantly better. And in the cardiology space, you know, data is all about mortality reduction, not so much morbidity reduction. But in the PE space, when people can just simply breathe and be able to walk around, that's yeah. an incredible accomplishment. And I'm still surprised, you know, even after all these cases, I'm still surprised sometimes on which patients respond, which patients don't, but how quickly they respond. So yeah, it's been, it's been a fun ride. Well, I've got two follow-up questions to that. One is going back to, you know, you said originally there was the ECOS rep who approached you guys and said, hey, I think there's, you know, an opportunity here. These patients are going a lot of times untreated. What kind of support did you get from industry, you know, throughout the years and I, you know, now we've seen more companies dedicate dedicated to PE treatment, but how have you seen that really help the program? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, industry, the vendors, the reps have all been incredibly instrumental. I think not only in our program, but I know multiple other programs, and also nationally. I mean, it's propelled the field forward in many ways. All these recent clinical trials, although not, yeah. you know, the standard, you know. Uh, double-blinded, randomized, multi-center trials, you know, mostly registry-driven, and they have its own shortcomings. But without their, you know, support of, of evaluating these patients, that we would never even got to this point. So, yes, this, uh, industry support has been incredibly helpful. And for us, you know, the irony is the Echoes guy who put us together and had the the meeting, I never, after that, I think three months later, I never use uh, Echoes yeah. catheters yeah. because once again, I saw a article in the endovascular today and it had a 510K approval for Anari. And I literally did a, a, call, a phone call, left a message and I got a phone call about a week later and I started doing my first case and part of the first registry. The first case wow. took us two and a half hours. <laughs> I mean- <laughs> And then, you know, six, six other cases afterwards, I would say, you know, success, I would not even define those cases success to today. Yeah. Uh, and that just right. tells you how much we've learned from both the interventional piece, which is whole nuance itself. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been incredibly supportive. Yeah. I mean, Inari is one of the, and you know, this episode is not sponsored by Inari. Inari has sponsored prior episodes, just full disclosure, but you know, I actually am not a, uh, I don't, I rarely treat PE in my practice, but Inari's done just observing them, what they've done over the years, uh, an amazing job of just training physicians up on on this procedure and uh, and going out there and really providing a lot of education to docs around the disease process, uh, as well as just getting their hands on the 
on the device and, and getting the opportunity to scrub with docs. So yeah, I, I just, I, I think the, it's just a great success story and it, and I, it has led to better patient care in my, in my observation. Again, I don't even do these cases, you know? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, I'll, Disclosure, I, I am a paid consultant, key opinion leader for Anare. So yes, but, you know, it's easy for them in that space because that's what they're focused on, which right. is VTE management. And, you know, Penumbra's done an excellent job as well. And they're helping lots of other physicians also grow, including our practice as well. And, and you know, there's also other companies in the space and new companies in the space. So I think collectively, they've done a tremendous job to really help propel the field forward for, for all of us. And, and most importantly, the the patients benefit from all this data. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, it's going to continue to evolve, and we're, we may even be still early stages with with devices and how they're being used. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. A decade ago, Rapid AI harnessed AI to revolutionize stroke care. Now they are bringing that same innovation to aneurysm and pulmonary embolism. This AI-powered, clinically driven workforce platform enables care teams to accelerate triage and treatment decisions and improve operational efficiency to achieve better patient outcomes. Rapid AI, where AI meets patient care. And now back to the show. Let's jump into like how your per team functions. I, I did want to, one more follow-up question to what you were saying before is for, for the uninitiated in our audience who, you know, sometimes we have uh, med students and trainees, residents who are listening to the show what happens if a PE is left untreated? You know, what happens to, to these patients long-term? Just give us an idea of that and, and why we do this. It, you know, not just death, right? With like you were saying, like right heart failure, but what happens when they, they have this chronic, this CTEPH picture? Yeah, I think probably be best to discuss and take one step back in the whole sort of macro view of pulmonary embolism and, and understand it's a spectrum. And the spectrum includes low-risk folks and then the massive PE folks. And then in between, which are these intermittent risk of patients. And that's kind of what we're trying to all figure out is which of those intermediate risk patients should deserve more aggressive therapy than just anticoagulation alone. Right. Um, you know, the low-risk patient's pretty straightforward. It's anticoagulation. However, I would make a comment on this. It's not all anticoagulation is, has equipoise. You know, I see this often here with the house staff where we'll be consulted for a patient with PE. And by the way, another little addition to our discussion of how we started the program, uh, we take all comers and even now, all comers, meaning all consults of VTE, both PE and DVT, get directly to the um, on-call physician. And so we're seeing patients who have posterior tibial vein, isolated DVT to chronic quote-unquote, debris of left common femoral vein to patients who have segmental PE. So we are not excluding any of those patients because we understand that maybe our orthopedic colleagues or our hematology colleagues or the urgent care down the street, they may not know the approach and management of this particular patient. And so I think being well-versed in the pharmacological management and knowing that data is incredibly helpful as it is to have a, have a place for these patients to follow up. As we all know, primary care physicians are overwhelmed. They're unable yeah. to see these patients in a timely fashion. It's very easy to you know, send a prescription for one of the DOACs and you get 30 days for free, but they show up then after 30 days and where is the rest of the therapy? 
So right. that is a huge piece to the team as well that, um, you know, I really pride myself on. And I think that's what separates our, our practice from the PE standpoint, DVT standpoint from the others in that we take all comers and help to support in any question that our referring physicians have. But going back to the main outline, the question is, you know, if you leave these untreated, what happens? Well, astonishingly, you know, submassive PE in the, you know, seminal trials, PETO, show there was a 5% risk of mortality between the high risk and the low risk category, which meant anticoagulation alone. And that was really the impetus to propel all the now device-based trials for that specific group. And how do you differentiate and find those groups of patients? Unfortunately, we have a differing definition and it's very heterogeneous amongst the three guideline committees, American Heart Association, uh, European Society of Cardiology, and American Association of Chest Physicians, in that they define RV dysfunction differently. Uh, one may define RV dysfunction as just the anatomical criteria of 0.9, of greater than 0.9 from RV to LV ratio. One may require the RV size as well as a abnormal biomarker, whether it be troponin or BNP. And so, unfortunately, that data becomes a little murky when we say, well, what happens? We know at least some of the data has showed us, the ICOPPER trial, which was done way back in the day, at 30 days, the mortality for submassive PE is about 14.5, 15%. That is higher than non-STEMIs. And that statistic is important. And, I, and you know, when I'm discussing this with other physicians and so forth, that kind of raises their eyebrows and you know, how deadly this condition can be. And then the sequelae down the stream, down the road, three to six months later, or maybe of a year, could be either this new entity we're beginning to learn is called post-PE syndrome or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, CTEP, which falls under group four WHO classification. But fortunately, for those groups of patients, it still remains less than 1%. But for those patients who do develop CTEP, you know, that's a very debilitating condition. In some respects, you know, you have to have surgical thromboendorectomy for the treatment. Now, there are, right. this, there are some physicians who are now in the space of balloon pulmonary angioplasty, but right. that's still, I believe, in its infancy. But yeah, uh, there's a, a, a significant sequelae both at 30 days, uh, two weeks, 30 days, 90 days, and then obviously long-term. And believe it or not, it carries a higher mortality than non-STEMIs. Yeah, thank you for uh, summarizing that for our audience. And I want to use that as a stepping stone towards um, basically what, you know, like when a patient is identified as having a PE presenting, let's say in the ED, walk us through how your team is activated, um, how, that, how that works, what technology is being used. Hmm. Yeah, so we are starkly different from the, now traditional definition of a PERT team in that we don't have many physicians on the team formally. As I mentioned to you before, initially we had a lot of pushback and not much interest. And so we kept moving forward. We now have had a number of, of both IR physicians, pulmonologists, and, and now recently one of my cardiology partners who wants to be part of this team, which is, which is be exciting because that will be bringing in sort of a new sort of lens and, and allow the team to grow even further. But it, it's very simple and, and, and 
I'm kind of embarrassed to say how simple it is. It's basically we have an algorithm. The algorithm has the ER physician or the hospitalist physician to evaluate the patient. If the CT scan shows proximal thrombus, we are notified. Okay. If the patient has non-proximal thrombus, no troponin, normal hemodynamics, after business hours, patient gets admitted to the hospitalist team. Immediately, an echo and venous Doppler are ordered in all patients' stat. Our echo team has now been well-versed in to do a special, what we call a PE protocol, in that we do a number of evaluation risk stratifying tools of the RV. Because at the end of the day, if it's not massive PE, your job, our job, is to evaluate this patient for submassive PE, i.e. RV dysfunction. And other than size, which is, can be simply done, there are a number of other factors. One is called TAPSI, T-A-P-S-E-I, which is probably the most robust proxy of RV dysfunction. And just for the audience, if you're curious, you know, less than 16 millimeters TAPSI, which can be, by the way, measured in any cath lab, excuse me, in any echo lab, doesn't have to be anything academic. It's very straightforward can be measured, can give you a really a good estimate of what the RV is doing without the dilatation piece. Because over the number of years, anecdotally, and now discussing with other physicians around the country at meetings, I think we're going to start moving into a different direction in that RV size is not the entire answer. Many, many patients have RV dysfunction without having RV dilatation. Many, many patients probably do better with catheter-directed treatment strategy if they have pre-existing LV dysfunction as they have poor cardiopulmonary reserve or some other cardiopulmonary compromise, and they probably deserve a more aggressive management. Of course, all this data is being collected, but from my experience, that's kind of the approach. And so as the patient is being evaluated with echo and venous Doppler, we have Every patient will receive some form of heparinoid, whether it be Lovenox or heparin. In my opinion, I think Lovenox still is the preferred modality as you don't have these waxing and waning of factor 10A when you typically do the IV heparin dosing, when there's a delay by pharmacy or, or the nursing staff, when you have to uptitrate the dosage. Obviously, heparin becomes advantageous in those patients that may come in with coexisting GI bleed or anemia or may you know, we've a lot of big trauma centers, so that obviously plays a factor. But generally speaking, Lovenox. And then in the morning, we receive a consult, just like any other consult was to receive. And we evaluate that patient that morning. And typically, if it requires, if it falls under the submassive PE, we are going to do a procedure that day. And we pride ourselves on that turnaround. It is something that myself and our partner and my partner attest to, and we keep each other honest with the length of stay and the, the uh, treatment modality. If we have patients that sort of fall outside the traditional definition of submassive PE, but not necessarily low risk based on the aforementioned findings on echo, we allow for 24 hours of anticoagulation. The following day, we do an ambulatory road test, assess them for hypoxia, you know, tachycardia, near syncope, their subjective sensation of dyspnea. And if it's not a segmental pulmonary embolism, and it's still some proximal thrombus, even non-occlusive, we will then 
performant, uh, catheter-based strategy. Now, that doesn't always mean interventional. What I mean by catheter-based strategy is I'm going to risk stratify that individual with the hemodynamic right heart cath. Got it. So I'm going to you know, evaluate their PA pressure, PA sat, and evaluate their cardiac index. And that's another sort of aspect in this entire management of PE. We have number of patients of normal tensive shock. And if there's a couple of take-home points to the audience listeners, this would be one. Again, normal tensive cardiogenic shock. What does that mean? Well, that means is you're at normal blood pressure. You do a right heart cast and right heart cast, the cardiac index is 1.8, 1.9. Anything less than 2, 2, 1, 2, 2 is considered abnormal. Now, yeah, maybe the natural progression of anticoagulation and time and patience may help overcome this with just the conservative strategy per se. But if that patient just did a road test and they were hypoxic and they had near syncope and there's proximal thrombus burden, again, not segmental, I'm going to go after that particular patient and treat them with thrombectomy. And that helps me sort of guide my management in those particular patients. Recently, through the whole, you know, the contrast shortage, I started to use IVIS and almost did a con like, you know, minimal contrast procedure, almost five cc's at times. You know, my, I don't usually do a preoperative pulmonary angiogram, but the IVIS helped me delineate a lot of the findings if there was present of thrombus in the proximal pulmonary arteries or not. And that helped guide me with therapy. Thank you for describing your your algorithm there. And um, I, I was curious to know in the early days when it was just you and your IR buddy, should we give him a name or just call sure. him Sure, Chris buddy? Bosarge. Chris Bosarge. <laughs> Shout out to Chris. Shout out to Chris. When you guys were originally starting, were you scrubbing all your cases together just so that you guys were doing, for, like kind of forming that similar, um, you know, technique so that you know, you, you had similar outcomes or do you, do, do you consider yourselves like doing things just your own unique ways? How did, how did you guys, I, I imagine you want consistency and, and to, to know that you guys probably mirror each other in your approach, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So one of the advantages of having a multidisciplinary team, particularly Multidisciplinary in the sense of interventional multidisciplinary team. I think I want to specify with that. The IR guys have such a unique set of also catheter skills and techniques, and they've been in this space much longer than, than we have as interventional cardiologists. And my senior partner, Chris, has definitely been doing this for much longer. So in the early days, it was just about discussion. Uh, as he was busy, I was busy. But when I got in a situation where I didn't feel comfortable or where to park the Ecos catheter, where to place the wire in the early days, I certainly would call him and he would be gracious to come up and take a look and say, yeah, I'd leave this or nah, why don't you do this? Or why don't you leak some TPA here or put another catheter on this side? Then that sort of evolved into now the sort of large bore catheters. And so you know, interesting enough, he comes to me and says, hey, I need to know how you places get access for large bore. How do I get right. up to the RV? What should I worry about? What about this ectopy? And, you know, it's kind of been sort of a, a nice sort of uh, collaborative, complementary skill set that we both sort of work off each other. And, you know, once a week or so through our VTE coordinator, who's been incredibly helpful to manage most of the stuff behind the scenes, 
uh, we'll get we'll send pictures to each other about what thrombus load we're able to remove and what he did and what I did and what I could have done and what he could have done and and we do discuss those cases from time to time. Yeah, so that that's a great point. Is how do you how do team members uh, you and Chris and and other other care coordinators how do you communicate during the workup and management? Is, is it via some novel software application or are you guys just texting or WhatsApping each other? Yeah. So yeah, I mean we're still old school, so we're just doing the text <laughs> back and forth. Yeah. But as I was mentioning to you before, if one were to start now and cultivate a PE team in a community setting or even the academic setting. You know, the academic setting is a little different in that they have the luxury of having fellows, you know, mm -hmm. see these patients 24-7, talk to their attending on call. In the community setting, uh, whether it be hospital employed or private practice, uh, now you have technology. And, you know, AI is going to definitely scale things in a whole positive direction. And this is one attribute that's really begun to implement, I think, will be very valuable. We currently do not implement it, but we are working with Rapid AI, one of the three AI companies in the space. Um, our stroke team uses Rapid AI, and they are very happy. And, and every one of the members on the team, including Chris, my IR partner, has, has, has felt that this is a night and day sort of uh, management now, and both not only evaluation, but also communication among the care members of the team. And I think that will also probably very much parlay into our PE protocol, maybe not so much within our own hospital, but our outlying hospitals will be incredibly important. I think, you know, COVID had a number of, of, of silver linings, let's say, uh, that came across for our PE team. One of them was the sheer volume of patients that were transferred to us and simply because we were a larger hospital in the area, you know, 600 plus beds uh, and willing to take anyone who needed to be transferred. And many of the outlying hospitals were full. And so for their normal general medical issues, including PE, a lot of the ER physicians would reach out to our central operator and call for the ICU doctor for their treatment of a patient who has PE. And they were surprised that they're in contact with the PE team physician, which is myself or the IC, uh, the interventional radiologist guy, rather than the pulmonologist. And from then, we were able to get and receive many other transfers. Hmm. But not all transfers need to be transferred. Right. You know, so I think where this AI piece, at least for us, will be incredibly helpful. It'll be a win-win-win for everyone. The referring hospital doesn't have to have that leakage of patients where they could hold on to, yeah. to our center that don't need to be treated. The patient and his family members don't have to travel so far or pay for that separate ambulance ride to come to our center. And thirdly, we are also limited in beds and we don't need to occupy a patient with low risk PE in our right. hospital center that can be managed uh, you know, with anticoagulation. So AI will, will definitely help mitigate those issues and certainly for a you know starting program or looking to take it to the next level i certainly think these ai software packages will be incredibly important but currently as we speak it's simple we post the images of the pre and post pulmonary angiogram along with the hemodynamics and the thrombus 
And through that, gets sent back to the referring group of physicians, usually the hospice and the resident or the ER physician. And, you know, we get the wow and the exclamation marks and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And that's kind of how it propels the field. So we kind of, we, we walked through your algorithm a bit. I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, we've, there's been this major shift. We already kind of alluded to it and we talked a little bit about Inari, but major shift in endovascular treatment of PE with the growing availability and efficacy of, you know, the large bore thrombectomy catheters. It sounds like you're using these uh, over catheter-directed thrombolysis or, and, and maybe even ECOS, but are, are, or is catheter-directed thrombolysis and or ECOS still, do they still play a role in your practice? If so, when? Hmm. I would probably receive some criticism for making this comment, <laughs> <laughs> okay? But I see no role in catheter-directed fibrolytics in the management of PE. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I say that is because how do we really know the duration of thrombus? You yeah. know, it takes just seven days to start to develop 20% collagen, 14 days, 80% collagen. And anecdotally, after using these large bore devices, you remove, you know, organized, fibrotic, chronic thrombus. I'd be very difficult to believe that a that TPA, you know, even rap, you know, now the new you know, modality is rapid treatment of TPA, two to four hours, would really improve that thrombus burden. Uh, and I, and just like, you know, the management of both, you know, STEMI and, you know, critical limb ischemia now and, and, you know, stroke, it's time to now move into the next facet of technology, which is using these thrombectomy catheters. Uh, it also plays a huge advantage in terms of management afterwards. You know, I remember, you know, when we used to perform, you know, acute limb ischemia or even DVT management with, you know, the TPA catheters and so forth, and you bring the patient back the next day, and you didn't really see a good result, and the staff is upset with you and frustrated. You go back right. to the ICU, hang another battle bottle of TPA, and you're like, "What are we doing here?" Right. So I think we're now getting to a point where, honestly, the thrombectomy catheters are the next phase, and they should be hopefully routine management for the catheter-based strategy. Yeah, and and. Kind of along those lines, because you just mentioned the DVT stuff, it, you know, we kind of walked through your your standard algorithm for maybe a more straightforward case. But what about patients who also have extensive DVT uh, that might under, you know, they might normally undergo intervention? Do you do that at the same time as the P intervention, or do you, or you wait till later? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it kind of depends on a number of factors. So in general, if a patient has coexisting DVT PE and the patient requires a PE intervention. It's PE intervention first. On the way out, if there is iliac vein thrombosis on either limb, then we will adjust according for access and do a contralateral thrombectomy of that particular vein by using the same catheter, by the way. Okay. And yeah. you can do that with some pearls and techniques, uh, whether it be penumbra or with anari. You can manage and, and clean the venous outflow. If patient does not have iliac venous thrombos and obviously doesn't have findings of phlegmasia, then I treat with anticoagulation only and reevaluate them in the office setting two to four weeks. If they continue to have some form or beginning to have symptoms of post-thrombotic syndrome, then I'll schedule an elective thrombectomy for that particular patient. 
And another sort of question that gets asked in the same sort of uh, concept is when and when do you not place IBC filter? Right. Honestly, the data, the PREPIC trials have all kind of taught us now that IBC filters are overutilized. And if you are using them, they should be retrieved early. But more importantly, unless the patient's hemodynamically unstable, you probably do not require the use of IBC filters. Okay. Do you see, like, you know, we see these AI applications we're talking about helping to identify and accelerate triage and diagnosis and even help coordinate care for PE. Do you see that application for these lower extremity thrombectomy and lysis cases as Mm -hmm. well? Yeah, well, I think where AI could be really beneficial or some form of technology app is going to be for physicians who are not currently treating this, rather the referring physicians or the patients themselves. You know, I mean, the incidence of post-thrombotic syndrome and chronic venous insufficiency is much higher than patients who have, you know, claudication. Yet there's not much focus on this. And I've seen this more often than not, you know, you get admitted with the DVT place on anticoagulation in the, you know, three to six months and they're never managed or followed thereafter. And unfortunately those patients develop, you know, significant debilitating problems and issues. And, you know, I could see some, some amazing opportunity for the technology to help target those particular patients and get them treated to, let's say, a center of excellence of some sort. The AI will be incredibly helpful to identify, you know, those extreme patients who have DVT, phlegmasia, or extensive DVT. That certainly can be helpful as well. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I, like you were saying, basically, is I can really see it being useful for follow-up with these patients too, with some sort of EMR integration and but uh, let's let's on that topic. Let's talk about post intervention. Who who is quarterbacking the care of these patients? It sounds like you have a care coordinator, so that I imagine you know they get they get them set up in in clinic to follow up once they're discharged. Can you talk to talk to us a little bit about your your sort of post intervention follow up and the longitudinal follow up that we alluded to at the beginning? <laughs> so yeah, I mean another take home point. The longitudinal follow-up is incredibly important for the PE team, VTE team, in that there are a number of patients that need to be managed appropriately with anticoagulation, duration of anticoagulation, as you are now beginning to see multiple data points telling us that even after one year of VT, the recurrence rate is still in the double digits, and it can last up to sometimes three to five years, even for those they don't have an identified thrombophilia. Uh, hence why many of the anticoagulation uh, dosages have gone to low dose or extended treatment. Uh, in addition, you know, many of these submassive PEs, whether we treat or don't treat, low risk or patients who have extensive DVT, those patients were not at a were not significantly enrolled in any of the DOAC trials with Xarelto or Eliquis or Prodoxa. And so it's my common practice after a PE treatment or a DVT treatment, even if I received adequate thrombus burden removal, I will very much, very often treat and discharge those patients with Lovenox, ideally for a week, if the insurance payers would, would approve it for two weeks, but one week is probably enough, and then transition to their DOAC therapy. Now, 
you know, with Xarelto and Eloquist, they have their loading dosages. So because I am discharging them home with Lovenox, I don't piggyback the loading dosages of the DOAC. I just go to the maintenance dose directly, but that's not based on any data except for anecdotal opinion. Uh, and then those patients are seen in the office uh, within about a month. If a patient has a DVT, they have a surveillance study. If they have PE, I don't order an echo until about three months. As I'm not sure if the RV comes back and it still you know, has dilatation or abnormalities, would I do anything differently at one month? So why order a test at one month? Got it. So typically it's a three month sort of um, metric for us. And then depending on the situation, it's either semi-annually or once a year. And we followed them for a good number of sometimes three to five years afterwards. And it, it sounds like your practice covers a pretty large geographical location in that panhandle area. Is it is it challenging to follow up with PE patients, you know, that may be coming from even, you know, as far as Alabama or, you know, Louisiana or something like that? Have you have you had challenges with that? Yeah, you know, through the COVID piece we've had now we're, you know, summer one or two years out and and they live over 100, 200 miles away. So telemedicine has been incredibly helpful. And yeah. in those particular patients who you know don't have the the means, financial means to come visit, or for whatever reason, we will communicate with their private, uh, excuse me, with their their uh, PCP and hand number the information. But yeah, that that becomes also an obstacle, just like any other sort of facet of clinical care. Yeah. Well. Rohit, I, we're coming up on the hour. I wanted to, you know, kind of uh, conclude with any additional advice you'd give to a, an endovascular specialist in either practice practice or academics who are interested in forming a team and improve, or or even they have a team and they're looking to improve it, make it more efficient. Anything that we've left out uh, in this discussion? I think we covered most of the aspects within the the nuances of developing a team and the management, the high yield sort of aspects, I would just, you know, leave the audience members with uh, an example or two. I, in the initial, as I mentioned to you before, in the very beginning, when we started the program, it was, you know, the narrative was another sort of procedure for the cowboy interventionist to do. And, and we made it an intention that this service line was to manage the patient. It wasn't necessarily all about the procedural aspect. We manage, I would say 60% of what we see is medical management. And it's not just medical management from the beginning, it's day two follow-up, day three follow-up and office follow-up. And so if you, the team needs to comprise of individuals who are again, passionate, motivated, and are champions of the respective positions within the PE team. And if there are not any physicians on part of the team that want to manage that other aspect, then it behooves the interventionist to learn and do it. Right. My IR partner, Chris, he will call me often. Hey, you know, I'm not managing, I'm not, I can't really, you know, evaluate the echo so clearly. Can you look at it and let me know what you think? Or, you know, upon discharge, you know, he, he will say, all right, I will refer this patient for you for follow-up because the patient has RV dysfunction. And, you know, I'm not sure what I need to look at at three months. So do you mind seeing the patient follow-up and vice versa? I don't remove filters and I'll send the patient to him. 
So that multidisciplinary team comes into significant advantage when you are thinking about not only initial stages, but obviously long-term as well. And, and is, is pulmonary part of that follow-up process? I mean, are, they, are the patients seeing them for, you know, to evaluate, you know, to look at their pulmonary hypertension or anything like that? Or, or is they, are they strictly seeing you? Right. So I think it depends on, again, the individual physician. So our, you know, one of our interventional cardiologists is going to come on board of the team. He has no desire to manage patients with pulmonary hypertension. He just yeah. wants to do the procedure aspect. So for those patients, it would be probably smart for them to also follow the pulmonologist and outpatient. And yeah. then for those patients that we are concerned about thrombophilia or younger individuals, it's a good idea to partner up with the hematologist as well. Yeah, yeah. So basically, wherever you're lacking, uh, you you want to find a complementary piece. I guess is what it sounds yeah. like. I mean, yeah. And yeah. again, if if you don't have, you'll quickly realize that you know you'll have folks from different subspecialties that want to be a part of the team, yeah. but you know they're not really there for you when you need them. And so it's gonna it's gonna be dependent on the founders of the team to learn it themselves and yeah. to be able to take yeah. control of this. Yeah. Well, that's great advice and I think a great place to end it. Rohit, thank you so much for, for joining me and talking through this today and to anybody that, uh, any, any more resources that we haven't mentioned for anybody that's out there kind of learning on their own, it, would, they, would you be willing to talk to anybody if they, if they were, had some questions for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's one of my passions. I really enjoy this piece and, and I'm also learning. So I'm often referring to the folks at the PET, uh, assuming at the PERT consortium who've done an incredible job. And there's all kinds of updated uh, modules and seminars and data. Um, and I often look at that um, frequently as well, but happy to help and anyone who I may have interest. Great. Thanks, Rohit. And thanks to our audience. Uh, you can find all prior episodes on Spotify, Apple, and at backtable.com. Everybody have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.